Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. So, uh, let's begin uh, with a word of grace. And then we'll dive right in here to, uh, to everything as well. So, Father, we just need to really humble ourselves always before the Word of God, but especially before the book of Daniel, which is just so pivotal in so many ways for us. And, Lord, um, more than anything, may we take our study of Your Word and bring it to us. And uh, may You bring Your Word to us, and may You teach us and challenge us. Help us to um, overcome preconceptions if we need to. Help us to overcome our own uh, fears if we need to. By being empowered by you, by laying ourselves before your throne. To be men and women who are willing to go into the fiery furnace. Men and women who are not afraid to go to the lion's den men and women who just simply take up our crosses and follow you. So teach us and humble us and strengthen us and encourage us and build us up. Give us understanding and wisdom and discernment that we might serve you and that we might glorify you and that your kingdom might come. Thank you for all things now. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to jump right in for a second. I'll go over the syllabus in a little bit. Daniel chapter 7. What happened? Oh, there we go. Daniel 7. I got the New American Standard up on the screen because it's more inspired than whatever version you might have. Yeah, yours is updated. Mine's the 77 edition, so here we go. That was a joke if you're just wanting to walk out now. Um... Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise and devour much meat. After this I kept looking and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. And dominion was given to it. Verse 7. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful 
and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another, little, another horn, a little one, came up from among, among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, and his throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were burning with a, like a fire. Verse 10. There we go. And a river of fire was flowing, and, out, and coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat. And the books were opened. And then I kept looking because the sound of, a boast, of the boastful words uh, which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night vision to behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right, let me stop there. Now, we have no idea what that means. <laughs> but we all say, Amen. Because if you got anything... You figured out the moral of the story, right? The Ancient of Days wins. That beast that was more terrifying, extremely strong and wicked, it's slain. It might have a mouth uttering great boasts, but it's slain. The Ancient of Days wins. All right. Now, the introduction to Daniel, what we're going to do tonight is essential. I mean, you can study, you know, Philippians next term and, and miss week number one where I kind of go over some introductory stuff and kind of set the context of when Paul would have written Philippians or may or may not have written it and who the Philippians were. And then just jump in the next week to week number one and be okay. Right. You can't study Daniel without understanding some of these elementary framework issues here that we're going to lay at our table uh, um, as well. All right, before we start this outline now, any questions, comments, or a snide remark? Let's, before we do that now, let's go to, uh, my, my intent for starting with Daniel 7, by the way, is that's the heart, what we just read is the heart of the book. And what I intend to cover tonight will be to explain why that's the heart of the book. And as difficult as that passage might have seemed, it's actually going to be pretty easy. And you're like, no way. It actually will be pretty easy. It won't be that difficult. And by next week you'll already know what Daniel 7 means. By the time we're done with Daniel 2, you'll know what Daniel 7 means. Um, there'll be more depth, but we'll, we'll see if we can figure that out as well. Right, before we go any further, let's go to John 17. Yes, John 17. Uh, some of you might recognize John 17. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer, right? His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, as recorded by the Gospel of John, hours before his arrest and death. And I'm going to start 
excuse me, in John 17, verse 11. John 17, verse 11. Jesus says, And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Did we hear that? They're in the world. I'm not anymore, but they are. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me. And I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that, I, that they may have joy, uh, my joy made, them, made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And I mean, this is a, a passionate prayer, isn't it? Father, I'm, I'm, I'm done, but they're in the world. Uh, help them. I mean, can you hear it? He's pleading on our behalf. This is not something to be taken lightly. We can't just jump into Daniel and go, oh, these are great stories. I learned them in Sunday school classes with that velvet thing, you know, and that little board. It was really cool. And the hand puppets and, you know, or, you know, more of you younger folks with veggie tales. Great stories. The king likes Daniel more than me. And you. Okay, I love that song. Um, can't sing, but I love the song. Um, yet we understand, wait a second, you know, it ain't easy walking into a fiery furnace. It ain't easy walking into a lion's thing because, you see, for us, oh, it's, this is really going to be, this is the cool part. What? It ain't for Daniel. He doesn't know that lion ain't eating them. He doesn't know the fire ain't, you know, that they don't know the fire ain't burning them, that, like, G Jesus is going to, like, join them for, like, a party, you know. They don't know that until they get in there. And it's walking to the door of the furnace, isn't it? That's the hard part. And it's what happened before then, right? When they testified to Jesus Christ and wouldn't before a pagan emperor that got them to where they had to walk into the fiery furnace now. You know, how far will you go for your faith? You know, these are real questions. And, and so this, this high priestly prayer of Jesus, I think, really helps uh, set us in a little bit of a context. Okay, so let's now turn to our outline here, introduction, some, some general ideas and some general features as well. Um, and it's addressed... Uh, uh, author and date. It's addressed to Israelites living in Babylon in exile in uh, the 6th the century B.C. So on the very back of your handouts should be a map. Okay, should be a map. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can open a color map, if I can find it. But make reference to this map as needed. Israel and Judah... There we go. There you go. Very good. And focus. There we go. So, oh, this is a, that's a serious. Sorry, we want Babylon. It's the same thing, but where's Babylon? That's Persia. Persia's too far. Babylon. Oh, this is good. Enough. Here we go. So now, 
the Babylonian Empire has taken over. So what, is, what, what says Assyria? This is all the Babylonian Empire now. The Babylonian Empire came in and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, If you're familiar with um, your Old Testament history at all, you'll understand the fact that... Uh, I would like another one that shows Judah and Israel. Here we go. Um, the nation of Israel, as we call it in the Old Testament, had become divided after the death of Solomon. So... Uh, uh, 900 B.C., let's just ballpark, a uh, um, little after that. Uh, and at Solomon's death, his two sons take power and divide the kingdom. The northern tribes are called Israel. The southern tribes are called Judah. The northern tribes of Israel are conquered and destroyed by the Assyrians in 721 B.C., and they are no more. So by the time we get to the 6th century B.C., in the end of the 6th century B.C., so 6th century B.C., well, how about 7th century B.C., which would be the 600s. We get near the end of the 600s, which, remember, the counting backwards. So 690, then 680, then 670. By the time we get to 606 or 605, all right, uh, um, B.C., what's happening now is the Babylonians have taken power. They have overthrown the mighty Assyrian Empire, established their own empire farther south. So here's Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. All right, and, of course, here's Babylon the capital of the Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and they have now taken control, and they are now moving in this direction, and they conquer Judah. And the two significant dates are, the first one is 606, or slash 605. All right, is this on your outline anywhere at all? No, I don't think it is. It's on, it's on your map that you have? Very good. It's on your outline, uh, uh, only reference in passing, so the actual event that I'm referring to. In 605 or 606 B.C., the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And here's what they do. All right, the problem of an empire, I mean, this is a massive empire. It's, it's, it's reaching Egypt. right? And it's all the way you know, to India, uh, almost in the west, not quite India in the west. Uh, I'm sorry, in the east. Right, this, how do you maintain control of an empire this large? How do you keep rebel people who don't want to be Babylonians? And how do you keep them as Babylonians? Egyptians, Babylonians. All right. What does an Egyptian want to do? They want to gain independence. What does an Israelite want to do? They want to gain independence. So what the Assyrians had begun to do, and now the Babylonians are, are following in, in stride, is they thought, well, the best way to keep these people from revolting against us and to keep them loyal to us is we're going to take the upper class, the wealthy, the nobles, the aristocrats, the king and his entourage, and all the educated, and we're going to deport them and move them to another part of the empire. And so they deported, that's what this red line is showing, about the, the Israelites from the southern kingdom of Judah are deported to various parts of Babylon. That's why Daniel lives in Babylon. He's an elite. He's educated. He's one of the strong young men, and his three friends as well. And they're going to now serve us. So while Daniel's in Babylon, what's he going to do? Revolt and go, let's free Babylon, never mind. Right? The people left behind now are the poor and the impoverished. That means they don't have the education, the wherewithal, or the means to bring about a, a revolt. And you, you deport these populations for that purpose, to maintain the stability of the empire. 
Now, you replace those populations, by the way, also, right, with other people. So what the Assyrians did when they conquered Israel, the northern tribes, they deported the people of Israel. That's why the ten northern tribes are gone. They were deported. And they replaced them with other people from over here. And that's where we get Samaritans in the New Testament. Samaritans are the northern people of Israel, the lower classes who who were left behind, and Assyrians who who moved, who were forced to move, to the northern tribes of Israel, and they intermarried. And a Samaritan is half Jewish, half Assyrian. And for the Jews of Jesus' day, you're half-blood. And a half-blood is not Jewish. In fact, you're worse than a Gentile, because you've corrupted your Jewish blood. So that that sets the New Testament context there a little bit as well. All right. The northern tribes, I'm sorry, the the first captivity then begins in 606 and 605 B.C. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are all a part of this. Now, Jeremiah is both before and during and slightly after this conquering of 606 and the second one I'm going to give you here in a second. Uh, Ezekiel is essentially before and then during, and Daniel is only after the exile. So Daniel, the story picks up for Daniel. He's in Babylon. The exile's already begun. Everyone, everyone following that as well? All right. So, and he, and he gives us the date, right? The, the date is, uh, um, uh, well, basically, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. The, the debate's dispute. The date is actually disputed, but I don't really care about it, so you can read the commentaries and Tremper along one will take care of it as well. But verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There you go. All right. So it's the third year thing that's, that's, a, that's an issue, but we don't really care. That's 605, 606 B.C. All right. The second date that you should be aware of overall is 586 B.C., so 20 years later. Because 20 years later, the Babylonians came back and finished the job. You see, in 606 or 605, depending on how we're going to date it, the Babylonians came in and they conquered Judah and took the people and deported them and had the exiles, Daniel and the like. But in 586 B.C., they came back and destroyed the temple. And that's Solomon's temple. The temple built by Solomon is now wiped to the ground. And all the goods of the temple, right, all the uh, artifacts and the gold and the plates and the, and the, the cups and the, the lampstands, the menorah, they, they took all that with it. It's all spoils of war. And as far as we know, and you can read all kinds of fairy tales on this one, the Ark of the Covenant was taken then also. Right? I, I think the Ark of the Covenant was taken then. I think the Ark of the Covenant personally was destroyed, and the Babylonians would have melted the gold down and used it for cups. And cups that may very well surface in Daniel chapter 4, by the way. All right, keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, that's where they got the, the gold from uh, as well. So the, the Ark of the Covenant exists no longer. So it's not in an Ethiopian hideout. If you've heard that one, I have. Um, it's not Indiana Jones didn't find it. Yeah, it's not in D.C. either. Yeah, and it's not in a warehouse. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I know because God took me and showed, showed it to me. Is that good enough? Yeah. So, here we go. Uh, so that's the, that's the background. That's the historical context. Everyone okay with all that? Very good, 605, 606 B.C., uh, the Babylonian conquest uh, right there as well. And let's see, uh, let's move on down now. And let's see, All right. 
Now, later on in the story, and we'll get to this at the end of Daniel now, we'll be aware of the fact that the Persian Empire comes in and conquers Babylon in 539 B.C. And if you, did, have you, if you study Isaiah, you'll be aware of the name of Cyrus. Cyrus comes to power in 539 B.C. So the Babylon Empire was short-lived. It's at its climax when it conquers Egypt. Um, but by 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire uh, comes to an end, and the Persian Empire comes into power. We'll go over some of that later on as well. And let her, let her see. Very good. Roman numeral two. The book of Daniel can be divided into, into two halves. But it's much more complicated than this. Okay? And this is where the introduction to Daniel is essential for how to interpret Daniel. Daniel has written his book in a certain way. He's crafted it. He constructed it. And when you realize how he's constructed it, now you know how to interpret it. Because he, he tells you, he shows you. What we want to do is we want to divide the book in half. First six, first six chapters, stories of Daniel and his three friends. And it's history, right? I mean, we'll just call it history. Okay, it's kind of more than history, but we'll... All right. Chapter 7 through 12, the book gets really weird and wacky, and we usually don't study that part. You don't learn it in Sunday school classes, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like Daniel had six chapters. 7 through 12, get all these weird, wacky stories. Daniel, I see all these beasts, it's got like ribs coming out, and horns, and you know, yada, yada, and I don't know what that means, so we're done. All right. 7 through 12 is what we might call apocalyptic visions. 1 through 12, historical stories about this guy named Daniel and his three friends, Rackshack and Benny. Here we go. Now, I put a but, letter capital B, and it's a big but. <laughs> I didn't have to have a joke there, people. Okay. But, now that you brought it up, okay, here we go. This is a really big but. Okay. Chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, are written in Aramaic. Okay. If you open up to Daniel chapter 2, it says in verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, quote, and he quotes them in Aramaic. Now, if your Bible doesn't say Aramaic, shame on it, it should, it's Aramaic. All right. Syrian, it, it's Aramaic. Uh, um, uh, ultimately, uh, we'll, we'll discuss it later, perhaps a little bit, but it's, it's what we call Aramaic. It's, and here's the funny part. The quote is not only in Aramaic, it continues in Aramaic all the way through the end of chapter 7. Right in the middle of the book, in the middle of a sentence, it starts Aramaic. So the first chapter, through chapter 2, verse 4a, is Hebrew. Chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, Hebrew. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, part B, the second part of two, chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 7, Aramaic. Now, if you have a Hebrew Bible, you can't tell, by the way, because... The Hebrew alphabet and the Aramaic alphabet are the same. But if you know Hebrew and Aramaic, they're different. All right? And it's, it's Aramaic. Now, that's something significant because what? Well, it links chapter 7 with chapters 1 through 6, then, doesn't it? You see, we can't just divide the book in half. That's why there's a but here. We want to say chapters 1 through 6, stories about Daniel and his friends, historical, 7 through 12, Arama uh, um, um, uh, apocalyptic visions, and they're totally separate books. No, they're not. They're already connected by language because 
the Aramaic of the first part bleeds into the Aramaic into the, into the second part by the by chapter seven being in Aramaic. So now we've got a little bit of a clue that these two part books, or these two parts of the book, one through six, seven through twelve, need to be read together now. Now the next thing that's happened is this: a chiasm. All right, let me let me let me see this here. Now I am I am more skeptical than all of you about chiasms. In fact, I got an email, maybe from one of you. I'm not sure. I'm not going to look and see if you're here. Um, and maybe you're listening online um, about chiasms. Chiasm, and, and and my word of caution is stop. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. We try to read chiasms. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. Into things where they're not there, but they are there sometimes. And what a chiasm is, it's kind of like this. You have point A, then you say point B, then you say point C, maybe you'll say point D. And then you'll basically say point C again, and then you'll basically reiterate point B again, and then you'll have point A again. And this is, they're totally parable, parallel. Now, the first thing is, don't just look for chiasms everywhere, because they're not there. I, I have done immense study in the book of Revelation and I've read almost every proposal on chiasms in the book of Revelation and I don't buy any of them. They don't work. Nice try. They don't work. Some of them look really good but they always break down somewhere. You just can't do it. There are no chiasms in the book of Revelation. And and the question was asked me of, are are there chiasms chiasms in the New Testament? The answer is no. I don't find, I mean there's a few of them but but they're really simple. And they're kind of, you know, Sometimes when you tell a story, you start off with a scene, you know, Mary and Joe are happily married, and the story ends with Mary and Joe are happily married, right? And then the, and there's some parallel there, but it's not really, the author didn't absolutely intend it. You'll see some, but not on a large scale. All right. You'll find them in the prophets, however. The prophets do this intentionally. They write their books, often prophets, and we're in Daniel. We're a good stead. And, and when it's clear and it's obvious, I'll, I'll, I'll buy in. So I'm going to present to you with a chiasm in Daniel, and I've been sold on it. As skeptical as I am on chiasms, I think that this is very much the case. And it will, it's really important to show what's going on. So let's see if I can make the case. And I'm going to actually show you some more, a little bit more detail as well. Because Daniel does this, and he's going to tell us how to interpret it. No, no. Actually, one more, uh, one, one more second. When you see a chiasm, by the way, Here's the point. The focal point is always, it's usually this. It's u- it usually is the center of the chiasm. Not always, but it usually is. But the key is, is that you can understand B in light of B. And you can understand C in light of C. And A in light of A. So if the second A was unclear, it might be made more clear by looking at the first A more carefully. All right, questions, I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, yeah, the, the, the point is usually there's a focal point, but... Daniel's not quite that way, though. I say that with a little bit of, of caution. Here's what we have, and that's this. Channels, chapters 2 through 7, and you can see I even put a question mark there. I'm sold. I think it's true. But here you go. Chapters 2 and 7 are both dreams about four kingdoms. The destruction of the fourth kingdom, remember the fourth beast that we read about? Ends in the coming of God's kingdom. The Ancient of Days sets up his throne. We'll see this next week in chapter 2. Remember I said, by the time we're done with chapter 2 next week, you'll understand Daniel chapter 7. Because chapter 2 has four kings, the fourth kingdom gets destroyed, 
And the, the, the kingdom that's, that, that's a stone, this mountain, that's not made by human hands, destroys it. And the same thing is happening in chapter 7. It's happening in chapter 2. All right, now in chapters 3 uh, and 6 are both about Daniel and his friends. Chapter 3, Daniel's friends get thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel 6, Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. They're martyrologies in which the heroes are delivered by God. So I think there's a parallel between Daniel and his friends, and we'll, we'll look at this more intensely. I'm going to build on this in a minute. Uh, and then Daniel himself. And both obeying God, serving God, pagan kings, throw them into some ordeal. Fiery furnace in chapter 3, lion's den in chapter 6. Chapters 4 and 5 are both about two foreign kings. One who repents and was spared, and the other one who's destroyed. Right? And they're, it's very apparent uh, as you look in chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Right? And the parallels between them, by the way, are very apparent as well. There actually is, I think, I'm not going to go there, but there actually is a chiasm even within chapter 2. And maybe a chiasm within chapter 3. And so he actually has chiasms within the chiasms. Uh, so they're very much there. Almost every scholar is going to acknowledge that this is not some wild, fanatical guy going, I'm going to predict the day of Jesus' return because I found a chiasmic structure in the book of you know, Hezekiah, which there's even a Hezekiah in the Bible, but I found it there. And, you know, no, not what's going on. It's widely recognized. And when something's widely recognized by scholars of conservatives, the liberals, and, and all, then it's probably there because it's pretty apparent. When somebody has to, like, force-fit something in, and in Revelation it's like, well, here's my chiasm, but I had to take this verse out of order and put it there, you know, no, not going to work. It's not intentional. Uh, I'm sorry. Is that helping so far a little bit? We'll, we'll see this a little bit more as well. Actually, let me go here. Now, this is an article in the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology, all right, um, in which he has an overview of Daniel right here I want to look at. But, Stephen, you have a question or a comment? So do you think Daniel wrote those verses in Aramaic to highlight the catech, whatever structure? The chiastic. It's, it's called a chiasm, yeah. Chiastical structure? Um, I, I don't think Daniel necessarily wrote those verses in Aramaic to highlight the, the chiastic structure. What the verses in Aramaic do is it links chapters 2 and 7 together. So what we think are two separate parts of the book, 1 through 6 and 7 through 12, are related to each other. So, uh, now this is Peter Gentry, and I don't agree with everything he's going to say in this article, but I, I think he's done a good job here. Look what he notes here. The first six chapters, Daniel and his friends are in the court in Babylon. Chapter 2, the king has a dream of a huge statue and a small stone. Chapter 3, Daniel's friends are rescued from the fire furnace. Chapter 4, uh, a king's dream of a huge tree. And then chapter 5, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5, Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. Remember the handwriting on the wall and the message to Belshazzar. Chapter 6, Daniel is rescued from the lion's den. All right. Then we have, in chapter 7, a vision of Daniel, who sees four beasts and the Son of Man. A vision of Daniel, who has a ram and the goat. I'll go over this more later. This, I'm going to read it now, but I'll go over this later, when we get to the later chapters later on. Um, chapter 9, a, vision, a prayer of Daniel and a vision of 70 weeks. And then 10 through 12, a vision of Daniel, the writing of truth. Now what we've noticed here, I think he actually has it on the next page. That's what I wanted to show you. Here we go. This is it. What he, what he shows here, and, and I would agree with this, even though I don't agree with most of this article. Um, that's okay. Here's what we've got. And, and you see how he's, he's doing this indent? 
to show you the chiasm. So here's his, here's his chiasm. All right, you've got a, a prologue with an image of, and then chapter 2, an image of four metals, uh, the triumph of, of God's kingdom, that's chapter 2, parallel with the four beasts, and the triumph of God's kingdom in chapter 7. So these, these are parallel. These two then, sorry about that, thank you very much. The persecution of Daniel's friends and the persecution of Daniel, those are parallel. The humbling of Nebuchadnezzar before God and the humbling of Belshazzar before God. And they're parallel, chapters 4 and 5. And it's, it's pretty apparent that, that he's done this. Now I'll go over the bottom part of this here later for you as well. So this is a, a scholar that I don't even really take uh, agree with all of his slant as well. Uh, here's another, here's another a part I wanted to show you also in this, in this particular um, uh, uh, article that he has written out as well. All right. Let's see if I can get this all in without making it too small. Chapter 1, refusal to eat the king's food. Chapter 6, refusal to obey the king's command. Daniel's vindicated. Daniel's vindicated. All right, two images, chapter 2 and chapter 7 now. Nebuchadnezzar's dream image, the four beasts. Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, the two beasts. Actually, you know what? I don't think he's doing it that way. I think he's doing it... I think he's doing it this way. I think he's reading it this way. Yeah, I, I don't... That's interesting parallel, but nonetheless. <laughs> chapter 2, a dream image and a golden image. Chapter 4 and 5, writing on the wall, uh, Discipline of Nebuchadnezzar, writing on the wall. Chapter 6, and, and then 7 has four beasts and two beasts. Not, and then I'll go over 9 through 12 and, and all that later on as well. But the reality then is Daniel has constructed this book in a particular way to bring us, to help us understand that wacky stuff at the end. Or what we think is the wacky stuff at the end. Hey, hey Les, I think the, the heater did what we thought it would do. At 8 o'clock, it thinks the room's unoccupied. So it turns off. So that's why we're getting hot. We're going to take a break in just a minute as well. So one, one, one or two more questions. Yes. The, the focal point, yeah. Well, let, let's get to, let me cover very briefly here what I think the focal point is. Uh, um, and I think Trevor Longman does a good job of it in his commentary in chapter one discussing it. The focal point, you see, we think that the story is about Daniel. Right? That's what we, we think it's about Daniel. And Daniel's a role model for us to learn from. The book's about God. The book is about God. And, and Tremper will make this point numerous times throughout his commentary. It's about God. Who he is. You see, here's the reality. In the ancient world, my God can beat up your God. And we can prove it because my people conquered your people. If you're a conquered people, what does that mean? Your God is inferior. If you are an Israelite who now lives in Babylon, your first thought is, all my dreams and hopes about the promises of God to Abraham, they're gone. Yahweh ain't God. Marduk, the God of Babylon. Bel, the God of Babylon. That's, he's God. And I know it because he beat up Yahweh. So now Yahweh speaks. Yahweh is the Hebrew name for, for Lord in the Old Testament. Yahweh speaks to Daniel. Hey, I want you to know something. I am in control. I'm in charge. I have let my people get into captivity because they disobeyed me. And I have used Babylon, and I used Assyria before that. Read Isaiah. Uh, I've used Babylon to conquer my people, but Babylon is in my hand. And I'll prove it. And that's what the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in the middle of this chiasm prove. I am controlling Nebuchadnezzar. And if he doesn't repent, 
He's got judgment coming. Oh, he repented. Okay, he's all right. Belshazzar, guess what? You see, chapter 5 happens the night before Cyrus conquers Babylon. Chapter 5 takes place in the year 539 B.C. The handwriting is on the wall. That's where we get the phrase from, right? And Belshazzar is trying to have this feast to rally the troops before the battle. Right? Remember how Daniel's made third in power? That lasted for 12 hours. <laughs> he is third in power for 12 hours. Because the next day, Persia's in control. And Daniel ain't in power anymore because Belshazzar is dead. Right? So... God is the one, and he's telling the Israelites this. So now you see these four great beasts, and you're like, oh, we're terrified. And it's just, don't worry about it. God will destroy all the kingdoms of the world that oppose his people and establish his own kingdom. Good news. Amen. We rejoice. That's what Daniel's about. That's what the book's about. It's not about these guys being faithful and not eating the king's food. And those are all great. I'm not, we're not, not going to diminish that, right? But that's not the book. The book is about God, who he is, what he's done, and how he's acted, and how he's defending his people, and will defend his people as well. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, about three or four minutes here to stretch, get some fresh air um, uh, as well, and we'll, fit, we'll, we'll go to chapter one next. Let's see if we had anything else. Uh, let's see. Oh, there you go. So, see, I was actually covering Roman numeral four right before the break. I should look at my notes once in a while. Um, message, uh, under Roman numeral 4, I'm going to skip Roman numeral 3. I don't know why I have it on there. Sorry. Message of, the, message of the entire book. God is in control. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord gave. Chapter 1, verse 9, God granted. Chapter 1, verse 17, God gave. And these phrases just ring true right from the very, very beginning that God is the one who's in control. Right? Now, even in chapter 2, you know, the famous passage where Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I had a dream, tell me what it is. Um, and it says, there's not a man, verse 10, there's not, chapter 2, verse 10, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this. Verse 11, there's no one else who could declare it to the, to the king except gods. Exactly. So when Daniel reveals it, God must have been the one who revealed it as well. Um, and then chapter 2, verse uh, 20, that the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Uh, verse 21, it's he who changed the times and the epics. Verse 22, he who reveals the profound and hidden things. It's about God. So the book is about God and what God's work. So letter B, Israel must suffer exile, this, which we discussed, right? But God is in control, and it's, the book is actually a message of encouragement. Uh, so if you get the prophets who write before the exile... Their message is warning, danger, danger. The prophets who write during the exile or after the exile are encouraging them now. Hey, I know you're suffering. You deserve it. But anyways, here's the deal. God's still in control. He's going to rescue you in the midst of all this as well. Let us see. God is supreme and faithful. He will punish Israel's enemies and deliver them. And we'll see this uh, throughout the book. But this is the Abrahamic promise. Abrahamic covenant, right? Abraham... I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. You want to wreak havoc on your people? Then wreak havoc on Daniel and his buddies. You want your nation to be blessed? 
then you better take care of Daniel and his buddies. That's the way it's going to be. All right. Now, also, letter D, the parallels with Joseph. They're very real, by the way. They're very real. Both cases, we have a hero who's taken into captivity. Both have the God-given ability to interpret dreams. Both come before court officials. Or they become court officials before foreign kings, though Daniel only lasted like 12 hours. Um, and then there's also similar language. The language of Daniel is actually resonating with the language of Genesis, which is the best clue that there is, that Daniel wants us to understand his story in light of Joseph as well. And by the way, Joseph is really important um, for everything in the Scripture, including the New Testament. Um, if you read the Jesus in light of Joseph, we'll get a lot out of that as well. So here we go. There's a reason why 13 chapters of Genesis are about Joseph more than any other character. So chapter 1. I'm going to go through the chapter. I may or may not reference these notes. So I'll do the best I can. I may or may not reference these notes. So here we go. Chapter 1. Uh, let me bring it up uh, here on the screen. And one, one. And uh, let's see. Verse 2. Uh, the Lord gave, God bless you, the, uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Those vessels are important. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. Anybody remember where have you seen Shinar? Before Abraham. Babel. The house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And he ordered Ashpenaz, the king of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom no defect, who were good-looking. Kind of like my family. Um, that wasn't funny. Oh, thank you, George. Thank you very much. Here we go. Um, uh, and uh, Let's see. Uh, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. Something more like my family every minute. Endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court, and ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, which includes witchcraft, divination, sorcery, right? He's going to learn all that stuff. Sounds like public schools. Um, <laughs> sorry. The king appointed them for a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed them that they should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Among them were named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Uh, but Daniel made up his mind that we would not defile himself with the king's choice food over the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God, there you go, granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander uh, uh, of the officials. All right, let's stop there for a second now. Here's, and we'll look at our notes for just a moment. Um, as well, let's see. So we mentioned uh, Shadrach, uh, Nebuchadnezzar moving against Jerusalem. Results in the deportation of many people. The land of Shinar is found in, Dan in Genesis chapter 10. Elite young men from the exiles are then trained. Now, you have to understand that a name is central to a person's identity. So these guys have these Jewish names. Daniel means my, God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. 
Mishael means who is what is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh is my help. But now they're going to become Belteshazzar, which we're not sure what it means. But it may mean, may a god protect his life, or may the goddess protect the king. Uh, Shadrach is some form of the name Marduk. Marduk is the Babylonian god. All right, also known as Bel, B-E-L, or Marduk. That's the god of Babylon. Mishael's name becomes Meshach, which appears to be something along the lines of, of the same as Shadrach. And, uh, it's some derivation of the name Marduk. All right, again, it's being translated into other languages. Uh, and Abednego, well, Abed is the word for servant. So it seems like he's a servant of Nabu or something like that. Nabu is, is one, of the, one of the deities uh, of Babylon as well. The point of this is propaganda training from which they would either serve Babylon or back at home. The point, in other words, they can go back home and serve, but they're going to serve Babylon because that's all they know. They've learned the art, skill, the ways of Babylon. They became encultured with Babylon. All right, now, the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the tribe and power of the language is Aramaic. But the language of the Babylonians was, was Akkadian, which is an older language. Don't worry about it. All right? And then the point is, they're going to get a thorough immersion in the thought, world, and culture of Babylon. Now, what's amazing to me about the story, just to stop and reflect for just a second, is no one objects to the training in the language and literature of the Babylonians. No, sorry, I can't do that. You know, we've got to raise our kids, you know, homeschool. I'm not saying that's wrong. You understand the point? The point is, they're not objecting to this. I don't know that they have a choice. But they didn't have a choice with the food either. But Daniel, you see, the only reason why Daniel got to eat the food he wanted was because he found favor with the court official. It says, Daniel's great favor instead of the, of the commander of the officials. And the commander said, one second, David, so you got a hand up here. The commander says, let's keep reading, um, uh, verse 12, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be observed in your presence. The appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. Compare us and deal with your servants according to what you see. She said, okay. And he listened to him. He negotiates that one. But he doesn't negotiate the other one. That's, that's interesting. Dave. Yeah, but we don't know that the food law... All right, this, the, the, so, the, very good question. The, the key question is at hand is, are they objecting because it's non-kosher? I don't think that's the reason why he's objecting. He's objecting because it's the king's choice food. And when I'm done eating this choice food, and I'm done with all this training, you're going to take the credit for me being this great, physically fit, wise, astute Babylon, Babylonian servant. If I eat vegetables then Yahweh gets the credit. That's the issue. And the reason why we, we would also add that is this. If you read the Jewish laws and, and the Jewish writings, they're adamant. You can't be kosher in a pagan land. So it's, kosher is not the issue. You're in a pagan land, kosher laws just, they're there, but you can't follow them. It's impossible to follow them. So, so I don't think Daniel's debating between kosher and non-kosher here. It's who's going to get the credit for all this training and, and, and everything else as well. And Yahweh's going to get the going to get the credit. And as we read on, that's what that, I think what happens as well. All right. Any other questions or comments? Or, 
or thought there? All right. So, so I put this down on point number, th- uh, bottom of page uh, three there, very last line of your notes. The purpose is to keep the four men from believing that their fitness was a result of the Babylonian culture. Instead, it's the result of Yahweh uh, as well. Oops, looks like the end of my notes for chapter one. Bummer for you because the chapter like continues uh, um, as well. So, um, as well. So let's see, verse. Uh, oh, good. I was hoping I could actually get in the tra- start of chapter two today too. See, so see, we're doing so well. We will. Let's go to the bottom of chapter uh, one for a second now, though. And uh, verse 15, at the end of 10 days, am I up on the screen? No? Thank you. If I'm not up and you're following up here, let me know. And if it's not centered, like George just pointed out, let me know as well, because I don't always look behind me. Uh, Verse 16, uh, verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. See that, son? They ate vegetables and they got fatter. (laughs) He's not listening. Is he awake? Yeah, yeah, okay, very good. <laughs> he wasn't laughing either. That's kind of, I thought that was funny because, Brian, that was funny, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah thanks, right next to him. That's yeah, very good. Let him know. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge. There's your key. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom, which means it includes the Akkadian, Chaldean witchcraft stuff. They're trained in all that. Right? But it's every form of wisdom, right? which obviously includes God, the wisdom from God. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Now, what that means, by the way, is, is this. What they have is they have these books. They're manuals. You know, Harry Potter. All right. And so the king says, I had a dream, and this is what I saw. I saw an eagle over a tree. And they look it up. Eagle over a tree. Oh, that means... Yeah, you have one of those. Um, that means, and they tell you what it means... Okay? That's how they did this divination. They didn't get this divine, oh, well, your dream means this, king. You know, No, it was, they read the manual. And they know that, that that's a good omen, that's a bad omen. And by the way, this transcends Babylonian culture too. It goes into Roman world, uh, stories of Herod, uh, Antipas, and stuff like that, if you get into the New Testament also. So, somebody have their hand up? No. Because the manuals were really thick. And the manuals were really obscure. So, in other words, you, you might have this feature and this feature and this feature all put... So what do we do when all those are put together? What does that mean? You know, so it's not, it's not so simple as A is A and B is B. It's what happens when A, B, and C are all together. How does that work? Oh, that means, you know, F, E, point one three slash section code C, whatever. So here we go. So very good. Um, sorry, Dave, I didn't mean to... Offend. I'm just kidding. Here we go. Uh, let's see. Verse uh, 18. At the end of the, of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presenting them before Nebuchadnezzar, the king talked with them, and out of, out of them uh, all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice what names Daniel just used? He used their Jewish Hebrew names. So they entered, the, that's the last time that their Hebrew names are used, though. From now on, they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny. Um, for, and they entered the king's personal service. As for their every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king, which is when chapter 5 kind of ends, basically, by the way, uh, um, there as well. Um, notice the number 10. Have you noticed the number 10? 10 days, 10 days, 10 times brighter, better than all the magicians. 
right? 10 is, um, I'm not sure we're going to make something here, all right? But 10, the most significant thing you think of when you think of 10 is what? The laws, the commandments. The totality of God's law, the Ten Commandments. And so, these ten times better um, is perhaps to be understood in the context of this fulfillment uh, of the law as well. All right, very good. Now, chapter two, in my opinion, is the crux of the book, uh, because this one's not that difficult to figure out. And chapter seven is really difficult. But chapter seven is the key. Because what we're gonna what we're gonna see in the second half of the book is that chapter eight repeats chapter seven. Chapter nine kind of repeats chapter seven and eight. And chapters ten, eleven, and twelve kind of repeat chapter seven, eight, and nine. Chapter seven, however, is the chapter that was linked to the first six chapters, right? Seven and two, both in Aramaic. So seven is repeated in eight. Repeated in 9, and, expand, and maybe even they say expanded in 10, 11, and 12. So if we get 7, then 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 are easy. They're just more details on 7. And 7 you get by understanding 2, which would be meant to be read as the bookends of 3, 4, 5, and 6. Just keep looking at your outlines and we'll get it. All right. um, so then 2 is a lot easier to understand because it's kind of a historical event. It's not this apocalyptic genre stuff. And he tells us what it means for the most part. So uh, we really want to make sure we can spend as much time on chapter 2 as we can. So let's jump into the beginning of chapter 2 then, which is good news here. See, I'm ahead of pace. All right? And uh, we'll just kind of get it started. And then uh, we'll at least introduce this dream and what's going on. Verse 1, in the second year... Of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And the king gave orders to call all the magicians, conjurers, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from, my, from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your house will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, uh, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we'll declare the interpretation. <laughs> Sounds like my home with the kids. <laughs> not, not this one, though. He's good. The king answered said, I know for certain that you're bargaining for time. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make known to me the dream, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. And as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or or Chaldean. Let me skip down to verse 11 also here for a second. Um, Moreover, verse 11, The thing which the king commands is difficult, 
and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And see, you see, we know the story, don't we? And if you know the biblical story, by the way, the goal of Scripture is for God to dwell with man. And Daniel's taking us there, right? Look, except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Ah, not yet. Jesus is the Word made flesh, isn't he? And the Gospel of Matthew ends in, Lo, I'm with you always, even the end of the age. What these people don't understand is, nah, not going to be that way forever. So, it's, so when, you, when the reader reads it, we, we, we know what's going to happen. So we know it's, oh, there's uh, Daniel, there's Daniel. We, we know, no one could do this king. But the bottom line is, the king's got this dream. And in the ancient world, dreams were of paramount significance. By the way, they're still of paramount significance for much of the world today. You know, we Western rationalists don't really like dreams. I hate dreams. All right. They scare me. Um, I don't like them. And, uh, but uh, I have a, a good friend uh, who is a missionary in Turkey. Um, he's a student in Turkey. Um, they don't allow missionaries in the country. Um, <clears throat> no one's listening right now. Um, anyways, uh, I don't know his name at all. Uh, anyways, we were talking one time when he was back home, and we were talking about w- witnessing to Muslims, because Turkey is it's a secular country for the most part, but it's officially Muslim. Uh, as well, and we're talking about his work with Muslims, etc. And and, he, and I said, you know, what's the best way to evangelize Muslims? And he said, pray for them. I said, well, you know, that's all great, you know, but come on, you know, what do I say to them? I want all these answers, right? He said, pray that they have a dream. The number one way to evangelize a Muslim is pray that they have a dream, because they listen to dreams. Pray that God will give them a dream and make Himself known to them. So even in our world today. This is one of the best ways to, to reach certain types of people. So dreams were of, of significance. This is how life was, wisdom, the gods spoke to them, etc. So this is real. But Nebuchadnezzar, however, he doesn't want them following their code books. The rules were simple, by the way. The king was supposed to tell them the dream. And then they looked up in their books. That's what they had three years of training for. They know where to go. Page 17. Look in the footnotes. There it is. This is what the dream means. And the king's like, no, not going to follow those rules. You tell me the dream and its interpretation, and now I know you're not making it up. By the way, because what are you going to do when, you, when a king tells you a dream? And the book says, oh, that means the king's going to die tomorrow. You tell the king that, and who dies today? <laughs> right? So you're going to lie to the king. So the king's like, I don't want you to lie to me. I'm not, I, don't, I want to, I want to, this one, this one really bothered me, right? It, it troubled him in spirit, verse, verse 1. He was troubled. So he doesn't want to be lied to now. He knows this, there's some troubling things to this, to this dream. I want to know the truth. Well, that's not the rules, it's not the way it goes. Okay? And so there's no one who can do this. And so now the deal is real simple. Um, the time has come up. And as we keep reading on in the story here, where we leave off at, uh, verse 12. All right, let me scroll down now so I don't have to do it later. If you guys have a question, let it be known, or forever hold your peace. Here we go, verse 12. Um, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. 
Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. Notice that, by the way, right? Not with, I want a, I want a lawyer. You know, he didn't notice that. Right? Discretion and discernment. To Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? <laughs> Why am I about to die? And Arioch informed Daniel of the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. And Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I'm sorry about that, by the way, because there it is again. I, I thought that was the last one in chapter 1. <laughs> That's like the first time I've ever made a mistake. <laughs> Shut up. Okay, here we, here we go. Those of you guys know better, quiet. Okay, my son's here. <laughs> in order that they might request, verse 18, in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. We'll stop there for a second now, and let's go see if we've got anything in our notes that we might have skipped over uh, here as well. Okay, let's see. So I gave you some notes under capital B about you know, what magicians, conjurers, and sorcerers, and Chaldeans are, and the different offices that they have, no big deal as well. Let's go down to capital C here for a second. Um, the difference between the Babylonian religion and Daniel's, point number one, was that the former actively sought, the Babylonian religion, the future by means of their own initiative, instead of God's initiative. Jeremiah 23, he condemns those who rely on dreams, a condemnation of prophets who, quote, speak from their own heart and then claim it's from Yahweh. So, we're not using dreams. You guys are seeking them to know the future. And we're not doing that. Alright, so, then of course, Daniel now goes on and prays here in chapter 2, verses 14 uh, and following. Uh, Daniel's one of the wise men, he's going to die. And, let's see, uh, okay, actually my watch says, I'm, I keep looking at that clock thing, I have a couple minutes, but I don't. So, the key now is going to be what follows here. The, and, and the first thing that's going to happen is, Daniel's prayer in verses 20 through 23. Really pay attention to that. Really pay attention to Daniel's prayer in 20 through 23. And then what we'll do next week is we're going to go through this dream and its interpretation, and then we're going to jump in because this is, in my opinion, this is where the New Testament just plunges full in. All right, This is all about Jesus. It's all about the New Testament. So we're going to really spend some time next week on this dream, its interpretation, and the New Testament there as well. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. So, Father, we thank you that you are the one who reveals all things. You're the God who is to be blessed forever and ever, as Daniel says. You change the times and the epochs. You reveal profound and hidden things. And for you, God, we give praise and glory as Daniel did. Father, we also ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment as this question arises here in the first four, five, and six chapters of this book that we have to grapple with. How do we live as faithful men and women in the midst of a pagan land? When do we object? When do we cry forth for justice? When do we submit to unjust laws? Lord, we just don't know those answers. We just, there just aren't any rules that any great church father or biblical writer has given us that we can just use as a grid. And we know that it's more fluid than that, much more difficult. But we don't want to just give in to culture. 
We don't want to just be separatists for culture. We just know that those aren't there are extremes that are not legitimate. So we want that wisdom of Daniel. We want to know when we can stand up and defend our families who are being attacked and houses being burned, as we saw in our other study this morning, this evening, in Nigeria. And we want to know when we should go ahead and willingly submit and die simply because we said a prayer in the name of Jesus. So give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Help us to know how to handle our children in the public school systems. Help us to train them and, and love them. Help us to witness the teachers and uh, their classmates. Help us to be lights that shine. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And Lord, we just don't always know what that means or understand how to, how to apply that. So I just pray your blessings upon my brothers and sisters and myself as well and ask that your mercy will go forth upon us this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.